Good evening, once again, welcome to KXC. My name is Damilola and I am on the team here at KXC and it's a joy to be before you this evening. Hey. If you are just joining us tonight, you find us in the midst of a sermon series which we started two weeks ago and we are looking at the names of God. The series is called Name Above All Names. And in this series, we are looking at the names of God in the Old Testament in particular, not all of them, but a section of them, and seeing what they tell us, what they reveal to us of who God is and what difference that makes for us in the here and now. So far, we have looked at Yahweh Shammah, the God who is there last week, Yahweh Yireh, God, our provider. And tonight we look at Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Later tonight, we have Anna Mason speaking on the Lord, our peace. I want to encourage you. I imagine some of you might not stay for the next service, um, but I want to encourage you to stay and listen um, over the course of the week so that we can be part of this journey together as a family. So in a moment, we're going to turn to Exodus 17. That's where we're going to be camped out as our Bible passage for this evening. But real quick, if you hear the word banner and what comes to mind is a decorative ornament of some sort or really tacky flag in the front of a church, I'd like to disabuse you of that notion and give you a bit more of an idea of what we're talking about when we use the word banner this evening. So it will be the penultimate verse of our passage tonight. Moses, the man of God, will say the Lord is my banner and there are these three senses to this word and the first sense is that God is my refuge he is my place of safe retreat the second is that God is my banner. So what is what we're looking at there is a banner would have been held up by the armies in the midst of war. And that would have been to the army a focus point in the heat of battle. They would look up and see their banner, their flag, their standard, and it would remind them of why they were on the battlefield. And let's say they happened upon an opponent and they sorted them out and they didn't know what to do next. All they needed to do was to look up, find the banner, and they would get their next instructions from the banner. So the banner is a place of focus and a place of rallying, a place of resetting and of reorientation. And finally, the Lord, my banner, encompasses within it the victory of God. We have sang tonight, we sing hallelujah, why the Lamb has overcome. And even though this passage is in the Old Testament, it is looking forward to the ultimate victory of King Jesus. So, banner is a refuge it is a rallying point, and it is a point of victory. Another three words we could use to capture this are, the Lord, my banner, is my place of retreat, my place of resetting, and my place of restoration. Can we try those three words together? Retreat, resetting, and restoration. Thank you. Okay, so Exodus chapter 17 from verse 1. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to it. If you don't have a Bible, to use your phone. If you have neither of those things, see if the person beside you look like a moderately friendly person and see if you can share with them. And who knows, you might meet in this moment your next best friend or the love of your life. Either way, feel free to say thank you to me, no matter what way it turns out for you. So, Exodus chapter 17, from verse 1 to the end, and I read, 
At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin, sin, name of geographical region, and not sin, the rebellion against God, and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, where there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron and Hur climbed to the top of the nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired, he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek, generation after generation. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the opportunity to be gathered in this way on this evening. And we thank you and we acknowledge once again that you are the God who sent your son to us, for us, to bring us to you. And Jesus, you are present here with us by the Spirit. So we welcome and we honor you, Spirit of God. We thank you, God, that you are one who speaks through your word. And so we ask that in this time, you would make us open and receptive and attentive to what it is that you want to speak to us. And Father, I ask that for everyone here and for everyone who listens, 
at this point or another point in the future, that the fruit of this time would not just be more information in our heads, but that it would be transformation in our lives, where we leave this place with a fresh revelation of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the standouts of the pandemic was clapping for the NHS on a Thursday night. Anyone remember that? It would take a while to not remember that. And some of the spirit of that was recognizing the people who are the least recognized in our society, but who are doing some of the most important work for keeping things going. And so in this moment, I would like to shout out the administrators. Now that's a specific group, and I'm sure there are some people here in this room who are administrators, so this is your shout out, this is your moment. Thank you for what you do, the unseen hidden tasks that keep many different things in many different contexts going. In many ways, administrators are a gift from above. And yet, that said, I'm sure each of us here have at least one experience when we've experienced an administrator less as a gift from above and more as a thorn from the other place. And I can say for myself that there have been moments when I have been in a standoff with an administrator that has been straight up spiritual warfare. Now, I'm a dramatic person. You might think that quite a dramatic way of describing something, but wait. Hear my story, and then you can decide for yourself. So, I take you back to my university days. And when I was growing up, people said to me, you're really intelligent, you're really argumentative, you should study law. And so I went and I did that. I went and studied law. I had so much vision going into it, and yet in the center of the experience, I took a massive, massive hit to my confidence. And I ended my degree not having that much confidence whatsoever in my intellectual ability. And that was pretty gutting for me. And yeah, my parents, they saw me at the end of my degree and they said, well, you know, the next step is naturally a master's. And I said, oh no, mom and dad, I don't, I don't think I'm intellectual. I don't think I'm academic. I don't think I can do a master's. But you see, my parents are Nigerian. And what is a child without a master's? It's a niece or a nephew, because it sure ain't your own kid. So mom and dad said, that's really nice. You are doing a master's. And so I enrolled on a master's program in a university in Belfast, and off I went. And yet there was a key moment, a key moment en route that journey that changed everything. I was in a worship gathering at a friend's house, and there were a number of people there. And one of them, someone I didn't know, someone who didn't know my story, came to me and they started sharing what they felt God put on their hearts for me. And some of the gist of it was around this master's and a sense that no matter how I felt about it, how much confidence had been knocked out of me, that God had something for me in the center of that experience. And so from that day on, my thoughts around this master's changed completely. No longer was this just my ethnic parents sending me to a destiny I didn't have any longing for. It was God working in my life, and I was ready for that. So off I went to Belfast, and I did it part-time over two years. So first semester, we have a bit of a shaky start, but we keep going. 
second semester were in stride. I'm like, praise God. God has made a promise to me and he's making good on his word. Now, that was the end of the first year and we're heading into the second year. And the end point of the second year needs to be a dissertation. I hadn't done a dissertation in my undergrad, so this was quite a daunting prospect. But I said, you know what? God has spoken a word over this experience, and so I'm going to hand on to it. And what happened? Well, in the course of time, in the course of the things that I was reading, by the hand of God, a topic began to crystallize in my mind, and it became clear to me, and not too long, that this was the thing that I felt I could devote my time and attention to studying. And not just that, as I was looking at the literature in this place, I noticed that there were one or two standout names, and one name in particular that really seemed to get this area. And again, because the hand of God was in the midst of it, as time went on, I found out that that person had moved to my university two years prior from the University of Oxford. This most prominent person in this field was right there in my uni. And not only that, as I looked at my calendar, my rotor for the next term, I saw that this person was going to be teaching me. So to say that I saw the hand of God in the midst of this would be an understatement. And so the term begins, I'm in class with this person, we get to chatting, he's really enthused that I care about this area, and I ask him after a while if he'd be down to supervise me, and he says yes. Praise the Lord. Everything is going well, until administrator. So... What happens, the process is, you have to fill out a dissertation proposal form. And on this form, you write out some of the idea that you're going for in your dissertation. And then you write down who you're thinking should supervise you, right? And the idea is for the school to try and pair up as well as possible who does what. Everybody doesn't get who they want, what they want. Not many people know what they want. But it's a bit of a process just to sort that stuff out. But what always happens is if you pick an area and there is someone in the school of law who does that area, it's a bit of a no-brainer that they are going to supervise you. And then if you go a step further and you clarify with them whether or not they can supervise you and they say they will, again, what happens is they supervise you. Are you following me so far? Great. So... All my friends who are in a similar position, not everybody knows what they want to do, but those who do, they write what they want and they get the person that they allocate. So tell me why one day I'm minding my business at my computer and I get a notification that I've been assigned a different person to the person I put down. Well, you know what? Like, I'm a bit, I think I'm a reasonably gracious person. So I see the email and I'm like, you know what? Like, this is a big, this is a big school. This person has a lot of work to do. They've just made an error. It's not the end of the world. So I'm like, how about I, rather than just send an email that gets lost in those of other emails, I'll go to the office. I'll say, Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Um, it appears that there's been a bit of a problem here. Just wanted to see if we could square this up. So I head over to the School of Law office. I have this conversation and I met with, yeah, just hold on a moment. We're going we're gonna to look at it. We'll try and sort it out. And then I wait for a while and I met with the answer. The decision has been made. And this decision is final. The school will not be reviewing the allocation of this supervisor. I said, what? And I stood there in this moment and I was like, what is going on? 
At some point, my legs began to respond to the signals my brain was telling them to move again. And so I made my way to the lift. And as I was at the lift, this is my conversation to the Lord. Lord, what is going on? Why does this have to be so hard? And why can't this work out for me like it works out for other people? God, where are you in the midst of this? And as we come to this passage tonight, we find the children of Israel much in the same position. You see, there has been spoken over their destiny as a people, the election of God. God has said to a man named Abraham, I am going to set you apart, bring you to myself, and set up a legacy through your family line that will chase change the course of world history. And yet the people know oppression, they know slavery for 400 years. To say that their confidence and their sense of what God is doing has been knocked is an understatement. And yet because of who God is, he remembers his word, he's faithful to his promise, and he comes to deliver them and he brings them out of the land of Egypt. And yet, as the story goes on, we see it's one thing for God to deliver them from Egypt, and it's another thing for him to bring Egypt out of them. And so, in chapter 17 of Exodus, they have moved out of the land of their slavery, and yet they're experiencing resistance as they move into the land of the promise. You see, we had those three R's at the beginning, but there's another R for this stage of the journey, and it is resistance. You see, the people of Israel and myself with my dissertation, and I imagine perhaps more than one person here tonight, See, we don't expect there to be resistance. We expect God to say something and for that to be our immediate experience. But people of God, let me tell you in a way that you will remember, when God is doing something in your life or in his world, you best believe it's going to be resisted. And that resistance is not a sign of the absence of God. That resistance is a confirmation of the presence and the word of God. And it takes being savvy to it for the people of God to know how to respond when it happens. So the people are experiencing resistance. In our passage, we see them encompassed between two enemies. In the latter part of the passage, from verse 8 down, we see them facing an external enemy named the Amalekites who come against them at a point of deep vulnerability for them as a people, trying to take advantage of them. You and I will know external circumstances that come by us at our points of vulnerability, trying to take advantage of us. Maybe you're here right now and you can say, that is your experience. See this here in the scriptures. And yet before this, we see not only do they have an enemy on the outside, there is an enemy on the inside. And the enemy on the inside are their desires that bubble to the surface and seek to take them out of God's purposes for them. See, watch how it happens. The people are at Rephidim and they are looking for water to drink. Is it wrong to want water to drink? What's the answer? 
Indeed, indeed, it is not wrong to want water to drink. So what is the problem? Well, see, what happens is this reasonable desire, this God-given desire gets exalted and distorted to the point that rather than it leading them into God, it brings them further away from him. And rather than them going to him to see how they can be part of what he is doing, they go to him demanding that he come and make good on the desires that they are feeling. They're getting this order totally, totally messed up. There is an enemy on the outside and there is an enemy on the inside. And yet the weapon, the weapon that the people of God are to take hold of in battling both enemies is the same. And this weapon is total and complete dependence on God. That is the game changer. So let's look at the life of Moses and let's see. He comes to proclaim at the end of this passage, the Lord is his banner. Let's see the journey that we take as Moses comes to that culminating point of proclaiming God as his banner. So the people come to Moses and they attack him with this complaint. Verse 4, then Moses cried out to the Lord. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. You see, Moses is also in the desert and Moses is also thirsty. But there has been something that has happened in his life that lets him know when my desires are rising to this point of nearly overwhelming me, and when I am facing resistance in the course of that which God has told me to do, where should I go with that? I should go to God. And so Moses goes to God. God is his refuge. God is his place of safe retreat. Moses goes to God. This is the hinge point for everything that is to come next. It is not the climax of the story, but it is at this moment that we are set up for the ultimate victory that we are going to see. It's not as sexy as what is to come. It's not as flashy. It's not as notable. And yet this is the decisive point in this story. It's the platform for everything else that is to come. Moses cries to the Lord. And how does the Lord respond? Verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. The key sentence in that passage is this. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile. See, I said at the start that one of the things about the banner is it, it is the focus point. It reminds you in the midst of the battle of who you are, where you're coming from, and what the point of it all is. And in God saying this to Moses, take the staff that you used when you came out of Egypt. This is his moment of resetting when God is reminding him of the story thus far. Moses, this isn't the first time you have faced opposition. And yet, you know from not long ago that when in the midst of opposition, you step out in total and utter confidence and dependence on me, you know that I changed the game before you. This is God telling Moses to remember. Remember the journey that they have been on before this moment. 
I wonder for those of us who are walking with Jesus, who have some of a history with God, what is it for you to remember? To remember where God has taken you from. To remember the times that he has shown up for you. To remember the formative moments in your journey with him. These things are not meant to be discarded as soon as they are accumulated. They are meant to stand with us as banners of remembrance, as memorials in the day of adversity and of resistance. God says, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile. And so as the passage goes on, Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out. There has been retreat. There has been resetting. And in this moment, we see victory, God's restoration, and the people are able to drink water. And so we see this is the template. This is the beginnings of what it is for us to understand what God being Moses' manner banner really, really means. And yet the passage goes on. So the Amalekites come and attack the people of God. And yet this memory of this moment of resistance is fresh in Moses' mind. So he knows already the way to get through this is the same as it always has been and always will be, dependence on God. So he tells Joshua to go ahead into battle. Verse 9. And Moses says, tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. And as he goes on, what happens is that Moses is atop the hill and he's holding the staff up in this posture. Now, we are not a superstitious people. The point of the staff is not the staff in itself, but what it symbolizes and what it signifies. It signifies remembering the faithfulness of God and surrendering in the, surrendering in the midst of our circumstances to his purposes. And so Moses' hands are lifted, and there is a battle that is taking place below. Joshua, one of Moses' protégés, is in the midst of that. And yet Moses is atop this hill with two friends, Aaron, his brother, and her, who we don't see much of. But from another passage in Exodus, we see that he is one who stands by Moses whenever the people come to challenge and attack him. And this group is key for us. See, I imagine the, the branding would have been different at this point in history. But we've got something a bit similar to this at KXC. And it's called pattern. Now, before you fall out of your pew with me finding pattern in the Bible, the key idea of what pattern is, is represented in this passage. You see, it's great for you and I to go about with a strong recollection of our victories with Jesus, the moments that have marked and shaped us. And yet, we see in Moses, he is able to hold up his hands, but there comes a point when he can't do it any longer. And it's not because of a lack of faith in him, per se. It's just his human fragility. And human fragility is not a bad thing. But the point of it is to lead us beyond ourselves into communion with God and fellowship with other people. So the key to Moses being able to keep his hands up in surrender and submission to God is not just him remembering on his own in a corner. It's him being backed by the people of God. 
key to my discipleship and yours are people that we can journey with, that we can speak to in the frankness of where we're at, people who can stand on God's purposes and be with us, encouraging us to stay in the game of trusting in God. We don't just have each other as ornaments. We need each other. And so we see that key to this victory is Moses retreating into God, remembering where he's come from and having people of promise and purpose around him who can remind him of who he is and who can stand with him in the midst of this battle. And so what happens? So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. As a result of Moses going on this journey and having others with him in the midst of it, we come to this point where Moses is able to proclaim with confidence over the people, the Lord is my banner. And you see, that's something of the paradox of what we see in this series. Because this series is about God revealing himself, letting us know who he is. But who comes up with this name for God in this passage? This doesn't come down from heaven on tablets of stone, but we do see God do that in just a short amount of time in this story. This is from Moses' own testimony of who he finds God to be in the midst of his experience. We have God's revelation and we have our experience. And these two things are meant to go together. And so because of finding God in his experience, yes, Moses can tell the people, this is what God is like. But only the people themselves individually can proclaim God to be their banner in the way that he does. You see, we don't just have Moses. You see, I can tell you that as things went on with me and my admin friend from a while ago, it wasn't the most straightforward of journeys. There were two months of backing and forthing. And yet in the midst of it, I held on to what I felt God had told me about this experience. And I said, God has spoken. And so anything that anybody else has to say over this that is contrary to what he says is a lie by definition. And in the place of prayer and of worship, I had a confidence rise up on the inside. It's not to say there's a formula about these things, but I can tell you for sure that I didn't just finish that experience with a dissertation and a degree, though praise God I did, and I'm glad my parents are happy that that all worked out okay. I came out of that experience with a new revelation of the character, the goodness, the faithfulness, and the purposes of God. That is way more valuable to me than that certificate ever will be. And so we have the testimony of Moses here in this passage and of me here tonight telling you who I found God to be in my story to say, if you need 
a refuge in the day of trouble. And if you need a point of reset and focus to remind you of who you are and what your life is about and what his purposes are, and if you need one who will ultimately bring you to restoration and victory, you can find this person in the God of the Bible, the God who makes himself known most fully in Jesus. If you don't know him yet, I invite you to come and know him tonight. I can tell you of who he is, but you also need to come and experience him for yourself. So there is invitation. And yet as we come to close, there is also a warning. Let's read again the last two verses. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fists against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. Of parts of this passage to not get a whoop and a shout of hallelujah after it. This is right up there. And it's worth recognizing that passages like this, and there's a number of them in scripture, in particular in the Old Testament, that they can leave us feeling somewhat uncomfortable. That they don't necessarily tie up with our image and impression of God. And it's worth recognizing in the midst of that discomfort, I don't want you to dismiss that. That discomfort is so helpful and so important for remembering that we are finding ourselves and seeking to place ourselves in the story of God. Not seeking to make up a story of our own, of a God that is palatable to us and fully makes sense to us, but rather seeking to understand God on his own terms. And part of that is understanding what he's communicating through passage like this in the scripture. We need to do work to understand how God is revealing himself, how it would have been received by those it initially came to, and not expect God to speak to us just via TikTok and through tweets as per 2022. That's just a general Bible understanding and interpretation note. And yet there's also a sense in which this is unique. So we do see a progression, as it were, in Scripture. And we don't see, as Christians, we don't believe, I hope you don't believe, that we should engage in physical combat with our enemies. We understand this as speaking in a particular place and time. And we look in this New Testament post the cross of Jesus, we see how he treats his enemies and we take our cues on how to engage with those who come against us from him, the son of God who allowed himself to be killed by the powers of that time. So this makes us uncomfortable and it is unique. And yet there is the question of what is the link between this passage in the Old Testament and our experience now? Has God changed? Has there been a reboot? Is there God 2.0 that you and I worship today? And the point I'd love to leave with you is in a particular verse that carries over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you can find it in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6. It's this. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, in this passage, the Amalekites are raising their fists 
against the purposes of God. They are subbing themselves for himself. And God says the response that we'll get from him is resistance. And so as we come to understand what this means for us, there is the invitation to know God as our place of retreat and refuge. But I want to make it clear to you, if your place of retreat and refuge isn't Jesus, it is in something else. And whatever that something else is, it is deficient. And so God will resist anything that comes against his throne. But know this, for you and I in any way to experience the resistance of God is to experience the mercy of God. As he lets us know that the foundations that we are building our lives on are shaky and they will not bear up to scrutiny or any reasonable weight. He is also saying that we can come to Jesus and know in him a sure foundation for our lives. There is invitation and there is warning. And I believe this is the word of God to us this evening. I'd love to invite you to stand as we respond.